Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hello everybody, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but it occurred to me this morning that um, positive mental attitude, you know, that that state of mind that we've all been striving for is taking a, a beating at the moment. People are starting to talk about toxic positivity and how you know being blindly positive Emily McMeekin is not good for you or for those around you and so someone brought to my attention this thing that is going to become fashionable they're saying which is called stoic meditation so what you do with stoic meditation is when you wake up in the morning you shut your eyes and you think of all the terrible things that are going to happen today your house is going to burn down your family are going to get are going to die your reputation your reputation is going to be shattered you're going to be hit by a stray World War II unexploded bomb. It's everything is going to be catastrophic. And then you open your eyes and you go, oh, but I'm still here and it's absolutely fine. And you carry on. Now, I felt unbelievably unnerved and panic struck just thinking that thought. And surely this is the opposite of manifestation, the opposite of everything we've been going for. Just lying in bed and thinking those thoughts would be enough to shut me down for, I mean, a month. I'd be on antidepressants within hours. (laughs) But you do think those thoughts anyway, so why not? harness those thoughts make them explicit rather than a thrumming threat exactly all day. now so, i see the logic but i also <laughs> see that the, the horror the horror how are you emily well um i my toxic positivity has taken a dent this morning because i accidentally found myself i'm not a coffee drinker i'm absolutely fine but i'm no I'm, no just just to clarify emily's not allowed to drink coffee sorry i'm not allowed to drink coffee because it makes me insane but what I found this morning was that I'm also not allowed to stand behind anyone in a coffee queue. I, I have never experienced so much tension than that 9am coffee queue in my entire life. And because I've avoided it for so long, I was standing behind this person patiently swirling I know, it is a palaver. When everybody behind them is looking more and more demented and like stressful and addicted. And I thought, oh my God, this I is... I know, the stress is bouncing off the walls. I think what you learn if you're a committed coffee drinker is never go to a coffee shop for your first coffee because of the swirling and the puffing and the hot milk and the hours and hours it takes. But it's absolute torture. I mean, you know... It, and it, for people who want in coffee, so already the most kind of nervous... Why haven't there been more stabbings in coffee shops? It's amazing that think that riots aren't every morning morning anyway and also (laughs) people have things to do they're so busy but not as busy as our next guest oh no oh no oh no so if anyone can shake us out of our january torpor it's this lady is there anything that helena morrissey can't do she runs banks advocates for women in business writes book and has nine children and two grandchildren she's also a dame and is only 55 i need to lie down just from reading this introduction helena anyway she's here to talk to us about how to know if you're in the right job, how to ask for a pay rise, why fitting in isn't always the most important thing. Helena, how are you? Well, Emily and Annabelle, I'm absolutely fine, but I am still really struggling (laughs) with um, going through the menopause and been doing that over the lockdown and pandemic. Uh, It's been a double whammy and I'm still struggling both physically and mentally. And you described me in words there that make me feel exhausted, you know. So I'm having to listen to my own propaganda at the moment (laughs) to read what I've said to encourage other women to uh, 
present well and to um, achieve things they can. I'm I'm still confident, but it has been it has been a blow. It has been it has knocked me sideways. I'm afraid. So you're having to drink your own Kool Aid. And did it did it strike as lockdown happened? Exactly, almost to the day, which I'm sure is absolutely unrelated. And of course, you don't really know because you know you have your well, it turns out to be a last period and you don't know that's the start of menopause, but obviously you have symptoms before and obviously every woman has different symptoms, which is perhaps why I was aware, but not really um, managing those symptoms. And naturally, and as the world was falling apart, it seemed a very small and insignificant thing compared with all the death and destruction that was going on around me. So um, obviously I didn't want to make a fuss as lots of women don't like to do about ourselves. and I, I don't think that they were unrelated at all. I keep, Emily and I keep hearing about women who started suffering, you know, mild to catastrophic menopausal symptoms exactly as the lockdown happened because it was like the macro trauma directly connected to the micro yeah. hormonal biological trauma. I know there's quite a lot of... what. So what did you do in lockdown? I went through the menopause kind, yeah. of, kind of vibe out there and I wonder whether it's also because when you don't have all the exterior stimuli that you would normally have you are then very focused on how you're actually feeling which you know most of us know that we power through as women all the time just like oh you know especially you in a very male environment presumably one of the big key things was not to be too womany about anything Mm, definitely and I think it was a weird time for everybody um we actually ended up you, you were saying perhaps it was a time of you know stopping and that made life easier but I think actually, we didn't actually stop. We had 13 people um, staying with us in the first lockdown. And luckily my husband cooks, but I was you know, trying to get lots of new jobs at that stage because I just stopped working for a full-time um, an executive role. And we had my little grandchildren, which was wonderful. But I would run down from a Zoom call and shove the washing on. And the whole thing was just fraught. But somehow through that, I was going through this at the same time and thinking, well, I can't really complain. But what were the symptoms that started to derail you? The stuff that made you think, oh, I don't know if I'm coping so well with this. So not sleeping. I mean, I just could not sleep. I never had night sweats, actually. I've learned that that's a good thing, so I'm clinging on to that. But I couldn't sleep. And, um, I mean, I thought, having had nine children and got quite used to sleepless nights over a long period of time, that I would breeze through that. And, of course, I just couldn't because it's the cumulative effect and also the anxiety that builds you know I'm normally a pretty optimistic person I felt you know prior to all of this on top of my game but you need a certain level of sleep to manage and that became very debilitating I'm afraid and that's what made me in the end I did seek help and I do see somebody who's sort of uh, you know and taking HRT and that turned the corner for me um but at, at a certain point I was pretty desperate to be honest and of course you can't as I said it, my problems seemed to be very small compared with other people's at the time are you sleeping now I am. I've got used to kind of waking up in the middle of the night and, you know, not panicking and just resting. And I've never been somebody who needs like hours and hours and hours, you know, one of these sort of eight to ten hours person. But I need a certain level. So, yes, by my standards, I'm sleeping okay now. And, yeah, so I'm fine. But it's interesting for you as well, because, you know, someone who's had, you know, nine children, you must be used to exactly like you said, sleeplessness, but also like hormonal fluctuations. But you've you've managed to kind of maintain that those balances all the way through. And then suddenly something one hits a a plateau as a woman, you know, or what it feels like. So it's a massive deal. And I think now I'm so glad you're talking about it to us because people are almost in the last six to 12 months, just sort of saying, enough, we need to discuss this because it's huge. And by the way, if women don't have hormones, then the human race stops. Yes. So, you know, really, you need to, we need to talk about periods. We need to talk about menopause because it's, it's, um, it's just so compromising for us. 
My theory is that, you know, we go about life and we have a lot of, we put imposed structure on ourselves or it's imposed on us because there's the school run and there's needing to get into the office and so forth. And obviously not just me, but everybody lost a sense of structure as we went into the pandemic. And I think that that was debilitating and unnerving for unsettling for lots of people who, in theory, were breezing through it, you know, perhaps had a nice home that they could sit in and do their work from, etc. And then if you have on top this thing happening where your body is changing, and I think for lots of women, certainly including myself, there is a um, an emotional aspect to it as well, because you suddenly are, it's not your own mortality, because I don't think it necessarily makes you feel of think of death but it does it's a phase of your life that's over the door is shut on having children firmly and you know obviously I've been very lucky and I've been very blessed with so many children but it's still it was still a wrench I still felt you know part of me had gone and gone forever and I found that you know a very difficult experience especially when we're not used to chatting I didn't have friends to chat to at that time obviously you just had your own family but um, you don't necessarily want to tell your children who've got their own problems or your husband who's got his own issues um, in the day that of all that you're feeling at this point in your life. I think it's been interesting for women because you talk about women who are, you know, maybe in the, you know, what, between 45 and 55 experiencing the grief, uh, you know, the, the fertile years. And then you've got 11, 12-year-old girls who are effectively grieving their childhoods whilst locked in a house. Yeah. And, you know, so it was it was a that particular circular aspect of puberty and menopause was really thrown into relief and all the trauma that that can create um, during that time. But if, we, if we, 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 we move on, because you were also looking to sort of press your own reset at the same time. With work-wise, how did that feel? So again, it felt rather unnerving because the the plan had been to uh, step down from a full-time executive role and then to build a portfolio of, you know, non-exec work and to, you know, and it felt like it was going to be relatively straightforward. And yet, of course, it wasn't. And at that stage, I mean, I would again be trying to do interviews when my little grandson, who was then two, would be kind of knocking on the door. And I mean, I, I adored spending time with him, but it wouldn't have really worked very well <laughs> in that context. And again, it wasn't the thing that most people were thinking about. And of course, I'm not complaining, um, or I don't want to come across as complaining, because it wasn't as if we were sort of on the breadline and so forth. But it was it was still like the plans were all kind of up in the air. And I did feel again, very uncertain about my future. And it made me feel very insecure, even though, in theory, you know, I shouldn't have been, I'd achieved a lot in the city, I, I would presumably be able to get some work eventually. But it was it was all um, made extra difficult by the pandemic. But there was this phase where I just had like one non-exec job and the rest of the time was spent really trying to get other work. Um, and I, I was slightly taken aback to find myself in that place position at that point. But you were also doing the laundry and, and you know, and, the, and so yeah. the pandemic threw into stark relief that awful gap in emotional and domestic labour between men and yep. women, with women carrying so much of the load. So how do you think that, as grown-up women, we can make sure that we're front and centre of the recovery rather than just another afterthought as the world opens up? Well, I think we have to be quite noisy about it um, because I think there is a tendency, particularly when you don't have that many women in policy-making roles. Uh, obviously, we saw throughout the pandemic that the group of cabinet ministers who were sort of setting all the policies was was men. And often there would be a contradiction between, you know, nurseries open but no other childcare or vice versa there was there was um it wasn't consistent and i think ideally we have more women involved at policy making but if they're not we have to be quite noisy about our position because otherwise we will just get 
lost, I'm afraid. There are lots of priorities as the country tries to emerge socially, economically, and in all other respects from uh, the, the, tra the travails of the pandemic. And women just have to speak up, I think, and make sure that we don't feel embarrassed about... And it's not that we're whiny or being difficult. We are just, we know, we're half the population. And we can play a big role in the recovery. We can contribute greatly, but only if we can, you know, have children in childcare and only if we can um, have uh, male partners who are shouldering some of the domestic burden and only if we can sort of perhaps have some flexibility around our working hours. But also only if we're represented equally in all areas of exactly policy making and, you know, even in the private sector or whatever, so that the younger generation can have a look and go, OK, this makes sense to me. This is like equal. This is fair. And also this is something to aspire to, because actually the the sort of I mean, I do feel very much like a lot of young girls, a lot of young women will have seen their mothers thrown totally under the bus by by this pandemic in the way. And that's not what we want to model, is it? We want no, to model I mean, opportunity. Helena, did you find yourself, as, as your children were growing up, talking to your sons and daughters differently about opportunities and, and their professional lives and what they would need to do to get where they wanted to go? Well, actually, uh, not really, because I, I guess, I mean, people always say, well, you have so many. <laughs> it all sort of ends up being... You treat each child, there's this kind of certain collective approach to the parenting, but then also, obviously, one's very conscious that they have diverse personalities and diverse skills. And just because, you know, I have three boys and six girls, so it's a quite a female-dominated household as well. And interestingly, because my husband has been a stay-at-home dad uh, since we had our fourth, uh, who's now 22, it's funny that they have seen role modelling a bit differently. So, you know, I've often talked about my middle son then aged about eight when I asked him what he was going to do when he grew up and he looked at me really puzzled and he said well I thought I'd stay at home like dad in some ways we have to encourage the men to get out to work so it's a but it's an interesting um issue and and I, I think now I look and my youngest is still only 12 so we've still got quite a long way to go um say with her and her her 14 year old sister in terms of what they're going to do and so forth. But it's only subtly around the edges and realising that they're being influenced very much still by their perceptions of what they see. And, and often, I mean, so many of the mothers are the ones at the school gate, even if they've trained as doctors, lawyers, you know, been fantastic politicians or policymakers. And, you know, that is something that definitely, I think, has, a, has an impact on young girls still. They, they sort of think, well, why am I going to do all this training if I'm not going to use it? So yes, it's partly been to counter, and also schools haven't always, and I think they should, talk about gender equality and talk about raising, you know, ambition levels and so forth. We've, we've been able to find some very good schools, but they're not necessarily the big name schools where they do focus on entrepreneurship and technology and some of the skills that you'll need. But often I found it's not a subject that's treated, you know, or addressed very early on at schools, which, which is when it all starts, I think, in terms of perceptions. I was really interested in, in your introduction to your book, Style and Substance. You sort of gave a brilliant illustration about your sons coming to see you talk at Oxford and them being really surprised by the women in the audience asking the questions, which were all about, you know, imposter syndrome, worried about things that were holding them back. Was it worth it? Is it OK? And, and it these was... were things that these women never expressed when men were around, right? No. For fear of looking weak or, yes, or inferior. Exactly. And also that none of your son's male friends were, were expressing at all any hesitation in that way. And I thought that was, I think that's just such a, 
a fantastic kind of illustration of, of, of the fact that when we all get together as women, we talk a lot about how we don't feel like we belong and how we are. How do you think we can start changing that perception, inner perception, I suppose, of ourselves? What's particularly intriguing was that, as you mentioned, Emily, that the girls wouldn't say this when their male friends were around. And it's almost like this big sort of secret when we're alone or talk amongst ourselves, it all comes spilling out. And then we put on this brave face. And it means that we never really, the men sometimes, I mean, I've done so many surveys where men have said, oh, we, um, we think we've got equal opportunities here and there are no problems for the women and so forth. And all the women say there are loads of problems and we don't have equal opportunities. And it's partly because we don't talk with men about some of the things that we're uh, feeling. But the answer to moving on it is to be, first of all, honest in open settings. I mean, I'm, I'm not opposed to women's networking at all. I think it can make us feel much less isolated um, and obviously create great friendships and so forth but, and give us confidence because safety in numbers. But we do need to make sure that we're not sort of carving out a separate role for women. We need to talk um, with our male colleagues and we need to say, well, actually, the problem is I can't do this. Or, and they probably would, you know, once they think about it, recognise that it's impossible what they're asking you to do as well. But by keeping it as this sort of state secret <laughs> and only something to discuss amongst ourselves, then we just can never solve the problem, I think. It just ends up being something of a mystery to the men who are often running things. I know quite a few women who will go back to work knowing after having a baby, knowing that at no point can they mention the word baby. Because the moment they say the word baby, they are perceived to be absent, not committed, a bit of a risk. They won't get the pay rise. They won't get the promotion. They certainly won't get the bonus. So they, they have to amputate that part of themselves as they walk through the door. Yeah, so where we can solve that is by having men talk about their families because <laughs> they have families too. I mean, obviously it's um, couples that have children, not just women. And it's amazed me that actually men, because they do talk about their children. They do say, I'm going to the sports day. They do say, I'm going to the nativity play. And everyone says, aren't they marvellous? You know, it's wonderful. <laughs> and I mean, it sounds sort of silly to say that, you know, because it sounds so sort of um, ridiculous. But I, I did it myself. I would, I would, you know, sometimes sort of say, oh, you know, I've got to go to an appointment, but I would be going to the school play. I was embarrassed and felt that I would be judged. And I regret that. I think actually... Although I in your been... case, it'd be a bit like people who don't want, who, who want a day off so they keep killing grandparents. It's like, you, you know, people be like, Helen, after the six, Helen, you know, she's honestly, she's having a laugh. Nine school plays, you're joking. Yeah, yeah ninth great aunt or something. So, um... No, I, I must admit, so when, when I was a CEO, I did, um, and I know some of the people there thought, you know, I didn't work as hard as I did because I would log on in the evenings or I would sort of work at the weekends and so forth. But I did make, by that point, I was confident enough to make it very overt that I would be leaving at a certain early time by most CEO standards each evening so I could have supper with my family and that that was extremely important to me and them. It didn't mean I wasn't available later on, didn't mean I wasn't going to come in first thing in the morning. And this is why we need more women running things as well, because, of course, they can use that power that they have that, at that point. They can then sort of set the example and, you know, it makes it OK for everybody else. And, and women did say to me, oh, it's great because I now fe I feel that I can leave. You know, the boss has left and men, you know, re recognised as well that they had permission to have a life I mean it's it's tragic really that we talk in these terms because um and actually over the weekend I was talking to some of my uh, older children who've started working and they were talking about friends of theirs doing internships or first you know junior level roles that finish at 4 a.m 
um, you know, they start work at 9 a.m. and they finish at four in some of the teams. And they were saying, you know, one guy joined an investment bank and he said, oh, I just hope I don't get into that team because they're notorious. They clock off at 4 a.m. But also, and, how's um, that going to lead to good decision making? Exactly. Um, and I think this is all, you know, this is one of these sort of old fashioned, it's like joining a sort of frat pack, I imagine, you know, the initiation ceremony. If you survive, you know, doing a year from 9 a.m. to 4 a.m., I mean, Goldman Sachs, um, there's their interns or junior bankers published a report saying they were working on average 108-hour weeks, which there's hardly... I mean, I can't remember how many hours there are on a week, but it doesn't leave many for sleeping. And the, they felt it was, you know, just, you know, their bosses had gone through this and they felt, you know, now it's my turn to sort of torture these junior bankers. But of course that puts off anybody who's, you know, frankly sensible <laughs> and it doesn't lead to good decision making and obviously we've had lots of scandals lots of bad behaviors all sorts of things have gone wrong in the city um and i'm convinced that they are connected with this you know like suspension of real life it's an illusion isn't it i was I, i'm watching dope sick at the moment which is amazing about the purdue farmer scandal and one of the u.s attorney generals because they've got a very small team wakes up at 4 a.m and sends a fat couple of faxes so that he thinks that Purdue Pharma will think that he, they have a team working round the clock. But it's just an illusion. And in that way, if you've got someone at a desk at 3am, what on if they've been working since 9, they're, they're not doing anything in any no, it's, way constructive. It's, it's, it's it's, like... if, if you look at it in the cold light of day, it's active self-sabotage on yeah. the part of the leaders. Yes, totally. In the same oh. way that I think that actually not having diverse and equal employment policies or whatever is also active self-sabotage because if you can reach everybody in some way then surely you double your pro i mean it, it doesn't make sense to me that you would just literally only try and focus on the same thing over and over again if you're a woman and you're working very hard but you haven't you have an inkling that that something is not right but you know you're used to feeling a little bit like a little bit of a misfit a little bit unnerved because you know you're a human being how do you think you can you can know if you're in the right environment and and what are the maybe not so obvious signs that you're in the wrong place you should think about switching things up for yourself? So question, do you have allies? You know, is there anybody else who's more senior than you who you might be able to confide in or, you know, your thoughts would resonate with? And if the answer's no, or it's only like one person out of 100, the odds are stacked up against you. And I had this experience in my first um, sort of major serious role, I should say, rather than tomato picking when I was a teenager. But, you know, my first serious role... Um, when I was, I mean, I've talked about it quite often, I was passed over for promotion, I looked around me and I realised that, you know, I was on my own, that I couldn't single-handedly push this boulder uphill and change the culture um, and change the opportunities that I had. So if you're on your own, then my advice to people is to actually, it's not being a quitter to, to leave, it's actually being uh, giving yourself best chance of success. You will, can find a culture, a firm where you'll be valued don't try to sort of be the heroine, you know, and do something completely impossible. Um, and most people would know that. I think they would know if they've got people that would think like them, whether there's a kind of pivot point sometimes in some of these quite traditional places, which might be just about to tip, or if it's just, you know, getting started in terms of moving um, away from, you know, really quite un unconducive working practices for, to your success. So I think, it's, I think you just have to ask yourself, do I have allies here? Could I get allies, even? I like that. I ask myself that at a party. <laughs> yes, exactly. And if I don't, then I leave. <laughs> I mean, really, it's quite a good test. If, you, if you're on your own completely, you know, you're probably not in the right place. <laughs> 
And what about that thing that we're all so scared of, which is asking for a pay rise? Is there a way to know if you might get it, a way to ask, a way to, you know, increase your chances? Have you got any any tricks or, or wisdom around that? Because it, almost everyone I know just has a full body blush and, and shakes and is horrified by having to do that. Definitely. So I think in this situation, we all feel embarrassed by the whole sort of subject to money. We shouldn't be, but we do. And we also feel extra embarrassed by the idea of sort of putting ourselves forward and saying we're not paid enough for what we're worth. So I think write it down what you're going to say. Have your facts. Make it very, very um, clinical based on, you know, the reality of the situation. There are a couple of different scenarios. So one is, you know, often firms are doing a sort of annual review And you might expect that you're going to be disappointed by what you're told in terms of your pay rise or no pay rise. So go do your prep first to say, make sure you know, okay, this is my performance appraisal. This is going to be the compensation discussion and have your facts ready. For example, the the, uh, great things you've done over the year, what you've achieved, what you think you might. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily go in straight away with what you think you're worth in the market, but you know, you could have a bit of an understanding of your understanding of your, of your mark worth in that regard. And just very calmly, and this happened to me once, I was given um, a, a tiny pay rise after having completely changed my job in the year. And I had, they hadn't given me a pay rise at the time. Uh, went in for the annual review. They gave me a minuscule bonus and the tiniest pay rise that you wouldn't even notice the difference. Um, and I wasn't paid all that much at the time. I was quite junior. But I knew I had really stepped up and I had achieved a really good performance. So I went in with my numbers. <laughs> and when they told me, I said, well, I'm very disappointed. And I felt like crying. I felt like, you know, oh, I want to burst into tears here because I didn't want this scenario. But I, I calmly, I took a deep breath and just read from my sort of crib sheet about what I had achieved, the change in my responsibilities, the people who are now working for me. I didn't hint, although I suspected that they might be paid more than me. And then I calmly just, you know, he said, okay, um, I hear you, let me think. And I said, thank you, left the room. And they came back that afternoon and did something like trebled my bonus and offered me like an order of magnitude considerably higher on my pay rise. And I actually think in that case, they just got the spreadsheet out and thought, oh, we're doing a 2% rise. She's done fine. She's doing 2%. Forgetting that actually I was hired into a different role. And afterwards, I thought, I wish I'd asked for more. <laughs> so it was only, yeah. But try not to get emotional, um, you know, because that's the one where you know, just and have your facts and have your try to rehearse it, you know, so you can get through that conversation that you might find excruciatingly difficult. And I think the thing is, no one is saying don't be emotional, be emotional, be emotional in every area of your life. Emotion Mm. is women's superpower. Use your feelings. But for that five minutes, (laughs) have the feelings before and after (laughs) and all around circling overhead, but just for that five minutes. And if no one said anything to you about your pay, this is where you have to ask for a conversation. You know, if you've had no discussion, so there's other scenarios, there's no discussion. And there, you know, you might have to do your homework as well about, is there a pay freeze throughout the company or something? And can you make a special case? Um, but just do do your homework around both what you're worth, what you've achieved, and then anything around, you know, if the company's got some difficulties, go in looking sensible. And I know you are sensible. Also wear something that makes you feel great and confident. I mean, that's the other thing about... You know, vibrant style and substance is sometimes, you know, certain clothes can empower us. You know, if heels make you feel like, okay, nothing can get me, 
wear those. I mean, it's just whatever makes you feel at your best going into that conversation because you need to muster all your resources. Well, that leads on to something I want to talk to you about, which is that if, if the pay rise conversations aren't flying your way and you're in a corporate job, in a corporate environment, what are some ways in which you can change perceptions of yourself and move more smoothly towards that promotion and more money? So it sounds cliche, well, it is cliche, but you know, when they talk about dressing for the job you want, not the one you have, and obviously it's a bit chicken and egg, you might think, well, I don't have the money to afford, you know, the, the suit that might make me look like I'm paid more. Um, but it is worth an investment. And sometimes obviously through secondhand shopping, you know, vintage clothes shop or um, even borrowing things sometimes, you know, just to kind of something that gives you that sense of, you know, I'm ready, I'm here. I'm, and it's very personal. The other thing that people often do is they obviously think, oh, I better just fit in here. I don't want to stand out. I think that's sort of the worst thing often that you can do because what you want to do is have someone think, wow, you know, they really are somebody I want to hang on to. Obviously don't wear, you know, flamboyant pink hair if you work for an accountancy firm necessarily, but wear something that makes you stand out a little bit. Don't be afraid to embrace colour in all but the very, very uh, most, you know, something like a barrister can't do that. But in most situations you can. And as I said, you know, wear heels if that makes you feel confident. Wear a suit if that makes you feel confident. Wear a great dress. But it's got to be something that is enhancing of your own feeling of uh, empowerment. It's not because it works on somebody else. Well, there is that, that Mary Beard quote, you cannot easily fit a woman into a structure that's already coded as male. So don't try and fit in. Well, and that was a mistake that I freely admit now that I made in my first role because yeah, I was the only woman in a team of 16. And so, you know, my, my goal was to fit in, but it was obviously very forlorn hope <laughs> given that a, I was the only woman. B, I was like 25 years old. I was uh, pregnant. You know, it was kind of like these were, you know, I was doubling down on the whole women, womanhood thing. And I did much better in my career once I uh, sort of em- embraced things that were a bit more distinctive about me. And I was very lucky. I had a mentor, unofficially, but a guy who sort of took me under his wing and championed me. And he had set up the second firm I joined. But he said to me once, he said, you know, I didn't hire you just to be like everybody else. I hired you because I knew you were a working mother. I, I thought you thought differently from some of the other people on the team. I want you to continue being like that. That's why I want you here. And of course, that was a fabulous license to to do things my way. And um, And from that moment, I can almost like pinpoint the day that my luck changed or so it felt at the time. But actually, it was that I took control more because I was not just feeling a sort of you know, uh, a pathetic shadow of what was the norm then. I was, I was myself. I was able to, to do things my way. Yes. I think it's interesting as well because women really want to be team players as well, don't they? Their instinct is it's a team, it's a collaborative thing. And so therefore there is a tension, isn't there, by where, where also women are trying to like push their personal brand. Like how do you balance that without feeling like you're kind of pushing yourself? I mean, well, without closing the trap door behind you. That yes, was the exactly. thing that was, that, was, yeah. that was always said was the, 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 the women 25 years ago would climb the ladder and have to shut the cra- trap door behind them because there, wasn't, there weren't any more seats at the table, slices of the pie, however you want to put it. Exactly. And things have changed a lot in that regard. And I think a lot of women recognise now that there's plenty of jobs to go around and together we rise rather than trying to in any way discourage um, women coming behind them. But I think that's where the secret lies. So I'm all for like, you know, because clearly you can only really achieve things. um, Obviously, you can be a great team player, but you also have to demonstrate some form of, you know, specific skills and 
personality traits perhaps or experience that perhaps only you bring to it if you want to get that promotion but then mentor somebody or you know there's always going to be somebody who's newer than you unless you really are on day one of your job and I would say actually it's so rewarding and usually you learn a lot from a younger person who's you know obviously now in a different sort of gen you know as we are now but has got really a fresh idea so it keeps you current younger so it's not all you know altruism but actually just give back don't you know I mean, when I started the 30% Club, there were these women who said at the time, oh, no one ever helped me and didn't want to get involved. And I was, to be honest, I was so shocked by that because I said to them, I said, well, wouldn't you rather they did? It doesn't have to be agony. But that's an extension of the mentality, which is I I finish my working day at 4 a.m., so will these guys. Yeah. The whole world's gone mad. Yeah. yeah. So this is why I think we need, you know, it's, it is a bit chicken and egg, but we need more women in these leadership roles that can say, actually, 4 a.m. starts, finish is completely ridiculous. We're going to peel off, you know, eight hours off that or whatever, um, which is still eight o'clock in the evening. I mean, it's not exactly knocking off early. And to show, you know, you can be collaborative and get on. You can help other people and still, you know, get a promotion. You can, it's not either or. And it's, there's not just one very macho way of behaving. And actually, the reason why I'm excited about this now is I think a lot of men are like this as well. They've grown up with their sisters and female friends having equal opportunities at school. They see, you know, them being cleverer than them often. Um, and then they think, well, what happens when we get to the workplace and suddenly the women are not treated as well or they disappear or they just don't feel nurtured? So they, I think the next generation of men, we just need to make sure they're not sort of, you know, subsumed by the culture that might still exist. But also if they've read any of the studies, these clever, ambitious, humane men, they will know that having women on the board is going to increase their profits exponentially. Exactly. And I think, and I genuinely think that there is more belief is not just being told that or parroting it and saying oh yeah 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 we're all for diversity but um so many men who speak to me say actually it has enhanced our team we've got better performance now um you know they they kind of completely bought into the business case but unfortunately it is hard sometimes to get leopards to change their spots and the people in power who are in their 50s perhaps 60s even they grew up in a very different era and i i just think we have to keep plowing on and making sure that obstacles don't hold us back. And women have to know that they're allowed to thrive in their working life and not just exist and get greyer and greyer and more and more exhausted. Exactly. And obviously the experience of the pandemic, as you, we talked about earlier, you know, it has been asymmetric. It has been disproportionate for women. Um, the gender pay gap widened. We've got to acknowledge and it, we can't just be complacent and just think, oh, we're on this path that's going to continue to get better for women. Obviously, lots of women employed in hospitality as well and retail, um, some of the sectors that suffered the worst. So I think it is time to, you know, make sure we have all those men who think it's important as well, you know, batting for us as well. And also two really important things happen that prove that things can change really quickly and maybe things aren't always getting better for women. And those are Afghanistan and Texas. Mm. So, you know, if we open our eyes, then I mean, I, I agree. You're saying it's time to make some noise. So let's march before they sign the policing bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. no, no, well, the, at least um, yes, the Lords threw the policing bill back to the House of Commons and said, no, thank you very much. This needs rethinking. And actually, we did include a new amendment making uh, misogyny a hate crime. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm very ambivalent about hate crimes because I think they can sometimes sort of, you know, be the, that whole offence can be abused. But if you're going to have other hate crimes, then misogyny should be one of them. So yes, it is time to be 
you know, not in any way holding back. Time to be noisy. We can do that. <laughs> we can manage it, actually. Yeah, yeah, anyone can doubt about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Helena, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. And sort of, you know, oh, so, such a pleasure. Revving us up a bit. I know, I feel really revved up. I feel like we should just go march down. Uh, march you know. back to that coffee shop and tell them to <laughs> hurry up. As I started off by saying, you know, it's not been a sort of plain sailing for me personally over the last couple of years. And it's reminded me, you know, people don't want to have this kind of constant cheerfulness. Uh, when it's not true but you also you know we we I think owe it to each other to help each other when we're both up and down really don't we yeah that's yes, true yes we do yeah thank you so much thank you so much for coming to see pleasure. us pleasure um and uh, and talk to you again soon I hope thanks Helena bye everybody bye. you've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of the Midult. our book I'm absolutely fine is out now if you like what you hear please rate review and subscribe And we'll just leave you with this thought. Snoring is just bragging about being asleep.